this week on the Backtable Podcast. Everything comes down to like the vibe of the room, right? You can tell when people are anxious and you try to exert confidence any way you can and just reassurance. And that's the same lesson table side. Like if you can have what you need to the doctor before you even ask it for you, like you've already like exerted confidence with him and all that confidence just goes to patient satisfaction. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. First, a brief message from our sponsor. This discussion is supported by Siemens Health and Years. Venturing into outpatient care with clinical, business, and financial decisions to consider, it may feel like you're exploring new territory and the stakes are high for you, your patients, and your practice. Now imagine you have an experienced partner to help you create a successful, sustainable practice. Feels like a relief, doesn't it? Siemens Health and Years is here to empower you in every care setting, every step of the way. Visit siemens-healthandyears.us to discover how healthcare providers leverage the specific expertise, products, and services from Siemens Health and Years to meet their unique outpatient care goals. Now, back to the episode. Today, we've got a great episode lined up. We're going to be talking about techs and tools, how a very good tech can improve profitability and patient satisfaction. I'm joined by a longtime friend of the show and recurrent guest, Chaz Sanders. Welcome back, Chaz. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And uh, technologist and educator, Lake Odom. Lake, first time meeting you. Thanks. First of all, Lake, did I pronounce your last name correctly? Yeah, it's just like Lamar. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to the show, the L, Lake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, happy to be here. Long time listener. Yeah, really enjoy the show. Awesome. Awesome. Lake, I've heard your name, you know, Chaz brought you up because he brought up this uh, topic, I think around the time when we were at SIR, right, Chaz? Yeah. And why don't we start out with just you telling us where you're at and uh, a little bit about yourself. Sure. I've been an x-ray tech since 2010. I have a bachelor's degree in marketing from Clemson. And I went to interventional school right after tech school. So I had a couple of semesters of training for that. And I worked in a few OBLs before I got a hospital job that I had for about six and a half years. So I've worked in a vascular surgery clinic, a cardiology clinic. Dialysis Access Clinic. I uh, went to a community hospital in the Duke Health System, worked there for about six and a half years. Spent a couple years in industry with uh, BTG slash Boston. Fantastic. And Chaz, people are probably pretty familiar with you, but you know, in case anybody didn't listen to the prior episode or have not heard you speak at the multiple conferences you speak at, uh, tell us a little bit yeah, about yourself. everyone's getting sick of me, Aaron. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> so uh, Chaz Sanders, I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Margin. Uh, we handle supply chain and outpatient uh, OBLs and ASCs. My background has been healthcare pretty much straight through I uh, worked as a rep for four or 5,000 procedures and became an executive in med device, shifted over to DeVita where I was working in their lifeline division running OBLs, and then about four years ago launched Margin. And so we currently represent, I don't know, 70 plus OBLs in 21 states. Fantastic. So, you know, you brought up this topic we're going to talk about today because obviously part of what you do is try to help these OBLs improve their profitability, improve the bottom line. 
we've had this discussion before with Christian Manova, like how do you staff a lab? And it, it's tricky. I've been in that space and I, we had a hard time, especially finding a technologist. And so I do think there's a really important, because, you know, we have all these docs who they're not, you know, they're looking at starting an OBL and a lot of, a lot of times they start out with the capital equipment or the space or what do I, you know, do I buy or I rent, but they're not even thinking about staff. I mean, staffing is hugely important, right? And so for those people who are already established, who are having trouble hiring, and also for people who are just even considering getting into the space, I want to hear both y'all's input on this. So I'm going to start out with the question, what should a doc or team lead? It's not always a doc who, you know, sometimes a business manager, sometimes it's guys like Chaz who are helping the docs out. What are they, what should they looking for when they're hiring an IR or cath lab technologist? I'm going to start with you, Like, I mean, ideally, you'll find somebody that you know that wants to work with you, that you've got a great relationship with. I mean, that would be the best case scenario. Uh, the next step, if you don't have that one person, I would look for someone with endovascular experience in some sort of lab that you may or may not know, but you got a referral from. If you're just struggling to find people, um, someone with experience uh with sterile technique is pretty important as well yeah on that lake you know i actually started to train an ultrasound tech who just was smart enough to kind of learn because we struggled we couldn't find (laughs) we couldn't find anybody or we couldn't recruit people from the the hospital because we couldn't compete with the the rate they were paying and finally i just started i was like you know i turned my ultrasound tech who was really sharp and savvy i was like you want to train how to handle catheters and wires? And he was like, yeah. And so you're right. I mean, sometimes it's just whatever you got, if they're willing to be down for it, as long as they're not running the x-ray, right? If they're just an extra pair of hands, that works too, right? Yeah, I think that's really important. What you're speaking to is someone who's really interested and engaged and wants to learn and is committed to getting better. All these things are important to learning a new skill. So people that like find you and are like, I really like what you're doing. I really think this is an interesting thing. I like helping people the way that you're helping people is invaluable because ultimately that translates to efficiency, profitability, and even patient care. Yeah, we're going to get, we're definitely going to get into that and how a good technologist helps with that. Before we do that, Chaz, I want you to give me, because you've seen this play out dozens of times at this point. What do you see as the biggest challenges currently in in finding, you know, a good technologist for a lab? Yeah, you know, first and foremost, staff is the largest single expense for any outpatient facility. And, you know, to your point, a lot of physician entrepreneurs don't consider that as they're going through the process. It's kind of the last part of it. And so recruiting these days for any field is challenging. You know, there's a new generation behind us that may have a different work ethic or work standard than what we grew up in. And hopefully that's better for our society going forward, right? Uh, And then just quality of life and compensation, you know, people want to be compensated differently. I'm always a firm believer that if if your compensation is appropriate, means it's market appropriate, then you're neither going to gain somebody or lose an employee based on a few dollars. People leave because they don't like rules. They don't like the culture. It's not really the dollars and cents of it all. Now, if someone's making 20,000 and they have an opportunity to make 30, that's a life-changing difference. But if someone's making 70 and they have a chance to make 75, it doesn't change the game for them. It's a challenge because sometimes you hire someone who's a tech, but you don't really dig into the depth of the procedures that they've represented before. And so even if you've touched blood vessels, let's say an electrophysiology rep who only does pacemakers, defibrillators, 
are not going to have the same understanding on how to handle 300 length wire that we would if we're going to do radial access, right? If you've never done closure before, that's a learning curve. And so to your point, you know, you have to take what the market's going to bear and give you, and you can't always get the experience that you want. Um, so I think for physician entrepreneurs, you nailed it. Having someone that has the capacity or, or patience to train someone is huge. Even if you bring in a tenured tech, the, and Lake can talk to this better than I can, the dialogue between that tech and the physician has to be really honest, transparent, and healthy because the tech is not going to know the nuances of their preference. Because every physician's different, even though you may have 10 physicians who train in the same you know, fellowship program, they're going to come out and within 24 months have a different style on how they want everything prepped, the cadence of the case, the handoffs, what is the, you know, the tech's responsibility versus their own. And uh, I think dialogue and communication is the biggest thing here. And then second to that, I would say culture. In many labs, the culture starts or permeates from the physician. But in a lot of labs, it doesn't because you could have three or four physicians all with a different cultural identity on the day that they're there. And so having a tech that can be that leader from the room in addition to the physician, for me, is one of the most critical things that they offer. Yeah, for sure. You brought up some good points there. And, and I want to touch on experience, right? Because, you know, those of us who who come from the hospital setting and go out into the OBL space definitely shy away from the green techs because, A, you're in the OBL space, you're on your own. You need somebody who's got some experience. It's, it's especially challenging to have somebody who's brand new and you're training them and then you got to deal with complication, you know, potential complications in the OBL. There's all these things you got to think about that you don't think about in the hospital, even closure, right? I mean, closure is a big thing. And so, Lake, can you talk to us about, you know, I don't, I don't know what your setting is right now. If you're in a leadership role where you have junior techs below you, but experience in the OBL setting, how important is that? Or is there just a steep learning curve and you'll get through that, those challenges pretty quick? Yeah. So, the learning curve absolutely depends on your past experience, but people have come with some sort of experience to our lab and the other labs that I've worked at. The key is getting comfortable at the table first. And if I'm the more senior tech and I know where all the supplies are, I'm constantly watching for like a case to be taking a few extra minutes, the case to be like a couple extra sounds, a sound from a nurse that the patient is like not doing well. So I'm constantly observing. That's where my experience kicks in is I'm just evaluating the room constantly. And if they need something else, I'll have it ready. An extra wire. If something goes haywire, I keep the room pretty focused on what we do. But if something like we need a stent or a balloon for whatever reason, it's usually in the other room and I'm ready to grab that. So I try to keep it easy and as straightforward as possible for people that are learning and then just be their support when stuff gets outside of the little sandbox that we've created for people to have room to grow. Yeah. So are, are, I mean, in terms of experience, because this is one of the things I've heard concerns are recruiting from or that most OBA owners are trying to recruit from is from the hospital, but they're having a hard time competing with that pay the call pay, right? The call pay is like that extra bonus that they get that they don't get in the OBL space. And and Chaz, you you talked about that sort of differential, but you know, five, ten thousand dollars here and there. But maybe you guys can speak on the importance of culture, which is what we're seeing in the OBL space where 
people aren't getting burned out like they do in the hospital. Just money's sort of becomes secondary to that being the priority when you're in the OBL space. So I can jump in. I've been out of the hospital for a few years now. But one of the things that I always appreciated when I did work in the hospitals is the difference between working in the cath lab and doing cases in an OR, right? And the reason why it was such a profound difference is the OR would have rotating teams. They could be coming and going mid-case based on lunch hour shifts, et cetera. And it didn't matter or there wasn't an efficiency for them to finish earlier or sooner. Whereas you have a, a tight-knit cath lab team, it's the same four or five people. They know how many cases are on the schedule and they know that when they're done, all but one are going to go home. And so those room turnover times are so much faster. The efficiencies are so much better. The culture and collaboration is so much tighter. And I think that's the big difference that you see in these circumstances. And an OBL offers that, right? We might not have the call pay, but you have the ability to say, hey, we've got four cases scheduled today. In addition to our four cases, we have this hour of work that needs to be done today. The sooner we're all done and the sooner we all get it ready and right, we can get out the door and kind of go on. And so there's a convenience to the quality of life that you get in an OBL that you just wouldn't get in the hospital side of service. From my perspective, now I wasn't actually in the role, so Lake could speak to it more. But uh, you know, the other piece that you just triggered for me, I thought about all the trainings I did during my medical device years. I mean. Who knows, six, eight months, 12 months, 14 months of total training over the course of my career, away from home in a hotel room, studying, you know, computer screens every day to learn the size or pitch of this thread or the inner diameter of the sheath. But the best education I had were from really generous techs. And so I was that rep that would get to the room early, look at the chart if it was appropriate, talk to anesthesia to understand if there's anything underlying that we should be aware of, and then just talk to the tech, make sure we have everything we needed. But then ask them, hey, or her, what's that widget? What's this thing do? Because, you know, if you're an orthopedic rep, no one tells you what a Wheatlander is or a Freer. You just know what your screw is. And techs are the best educators. At least they were for me, and they helped my, my learning curve. But there's a lot of information there. Like, what are your thoughts about the two environments? OR versus cath lab? Yeah. Yeah, you, you're exactly right on pretty much all your points. Culture is the biggest thing. You're right, the OR staff, when I've come up to help vascular surgery or somebody else, they don't really even, in, in my hospital, they didn't do very much endovascular work, so they appreciated my help. But at the same time, that's not something anybody really wanted to learn because they only did it like once every other month. So, you know, when you've got a small community that is pointed towards the door and if all of us can band together and get our work done, I think that creates community and culture. So would you say a salary is better than an hourly rate just because it's more of like commitment? It's like you're you're part of our family. You're not just this gig worker. I mean, I think so. Absolutely. It's hard to get a salary for a tech inside of a hospital. So if we're speaking to an OBL, I think that's a big selling point if you want to recruit people away is I can put you on a salary, you leave when the cases are done and your work is done and all of a sudden your hours are instead of eight to five or even later if you have a call case, your day is seven to three or seven three to three and if you're done with your work, you can leave at one. Like that's an amazing way to keep people. And now that you trust them to get their work done, they may work even faster than you know. Yeah, 
The other thing I'd say, Aaron, is whether it's a tech or anybody who's being compensated or incentivized, I think there really needs to be a depth of thought around compensation and how do you incentivize employees. Uh, if we take med tech, for example, we talked about med device. Almost everyone in the med device space is compensated on dollar sales. But for every business, you should be concerned about profitability. And so what we often see in this in the industry is that end of the quarter, end of the month, a rep will come in and say, hey, if you buy 20 of these now, I've got three additional ones I can give to you at no charge. Or, hey, you buy 20 and I'm going to give you 25% off your contracted price. And all that does is feed a system of false incentives for the representatives, right? Because all you're doing is really bleeding future sales for that medical device organization. Because at some point, that customer is going to need those widgets at 20% higher. So why give 20 away now, except there's a bunch of reps and executives that want to hit a target or a bonus. And so when we look at techs or any staff in OBL, I think for me, if I was to own one today, I would set up a salary that people know that we're going to take care of them at a minimal level. Regardless, you're committed to this and we're committed to you and our good times are bad times. But then coming up with additional incentive on top of that, that's going to drive everyone towards a usable goal. So whether it's cost savings on products, whether it's turnover time, whether it's you know cleanliness of the lab and organization of all the products, finding a way to incentivize your teams that's commensurate with what your goal for that team is, is what most entrepreneurs don't focus on. I, I mean, Lake, I don't know over the years if you've had extra incentives that you valued or ones that you didn't, but you know, I'd be curious to hear that or how you did it, Aaron, at yours. Well, we, we didn't, uh, and that, that's part of the problem. Um, you know, we just poor, poor management, but that's a whole nother story, but it's a great segue into our, my next question, which is for business owners who have that management control or even hospital systems, you know, how can a good tech improve profitability and efficiency? And I know it's, it's a big question, but let's start, you spoke about profitability. Let's start there. So if you're talking about bottom line, cost savings is one way to increase profit, understanding which products cost a little bit more, like being very careful not to drop a $1,000 stent or an $1,800 atherectomy device, understanding how much those things cost while you they're in your hands is very important. I'm not saying anyone's ever intentionally dropping things, but it's it's just beneficial to know when you have a $2,000 piece of equipment in your hand. Uh, and it's also nice to know when you have a $5 piece of equipment in your hand to know like, this falls, give me another one, don't even think about it. So from that aspect, just knowing the prices can really help with profitability. And if you ever have a chance to change out for a lower cost item that's equal, uh, if that part, if that price is equal or a little bit better and the quality is virtually the same, it's just understanding what products can sub out for others. And Lake, are, in your role, are you helping to hunt for those deals and keep an eye on inventory and uh, what, what can be switched out? Yeah, occasionally. I, I like to defer to leadership when these opportunities come up because it, I'm not the one writing the check, so I like to defer up. But when I am like on a, a vendor site, I will compare like if like a cook micro access kit is a different price than another one. I can A, B them and make sure that they're exactly the same and I can go with the cheaper one and always look for, if I have a choice to choose 
a medication from one vendor or another. So I, I do it just generally looking. So yeah, I, I'm encouraged to do that when I can. Chaz, what are you seeing across your OBLs uh, in terms of where you see techs participating in improving profitability? You know, it, it's amazing. It's, uh, it's such a great question because the gut response is always to go to the physician first. Hey, I know you're using this widget, but this widget is 14% lower. Would you consider it? And the answer I always get is, yes, of course I'd consider it. But then the follow through, because there's just so many, you know, when you're the business owner of an OBL and you're the lead physician, and you have a family and personal life and community engagement and everything that you're doing, that that 13% on that one item doesn't make sense. It's not the time value for them. Actually, Mary Costantino made fun of me at SIR this year uh, because she said that she'll get an email from me really excited about a 27% reduction in an item. And then she'll look at the line item cost and it's a difference of eight cents. And, you know, and that's just <laughs> not a good use of her time. Uh, so what we found is that engaging the techs and making sure they're part of that conversation and that process, uh, engage with the physician. So copy it on the messages with the physician, all one communication change. The tech is the one that's going to elicit or promote the change long-term. You know, an example would be, let's just take inflation devices. Uh, everyone's paying between 23 and $30 per inflation device in the marketplace. Uh, for my network, I found one that's fantastic at 1375. And so that's a $20 case savings, $15 a case, I'm embellishing a little bit, but $15 a case savings times maybe a thousand cases this year. That's a, you know, that's half of your front staff employee salary for the person sitting at the desk. And the physician may want to enjoy those savings, but they're not going to think about it in the middle of it. It's getting the tech engaged, making sure they're happy with the nuances of it. And clinically, that's not impacting negatively their, their experience there. Uh, and then ensuring that the facility is incentivizing the care about cost savings. But the techs are the ones that can remind the physicians, keep them engaged, change the case card so we know what to drop in the room at the prep of the room. Those are all the things that the tech masters and the tech owns. And most labs don't think about. Yeah, those are great examples. And part of profit, I think efficiency and profitability go kind of hand in hand, right? Because the more efficient you are, the more cases you can do, the more equals, the more profitable you're going to be. Where have you seen efficiency improved with active technologist engagement and involvement? Yeah. So when I was in the hospital, I worked with a bunch of different techs and the ones that sit back and wait for the doctor to ask stuff take longer to set up. And the ones that are ready and ask the doctor, hey, we're doing a shunt today that'll need like a six French sheath. It's probably a seven balloon because we used it the last time. Uh, we stuck towards the artery the last time. Do you think you're going to do that again? Do you need a burn? Like, And so instead of like waiting to go pull all that stuff off the shelf, all that stuff's either on the tray or right beside the tray ready to go. And it's just being actively engaged with the case that's in front of you and even engaged in the case after that so you can have that stuff ready so you're not wasting time trying to figure out what your next move is. So it's a lot like chess. I mean, being two, three, four steps ahead can make you way more efficient and just get your day moving. Yeah. I mean, even as a non-business owner, like in the hospital when I'm doing locums, that is the difference, right? I, the good tech, the proactive tech is asking what you're going to need for every step of the case. 
before the patient's even in the room, right? They're getting everything set up. And I, I noticed a stark difference from, and, and it tends to be newbies, it tends to be more green techs where they just scrub with you. And then next, you know, you're asking like, where's this? Where's it? Why do we not have this? And they're having somebody hunted down and it's in the room next door. And it comes with time, but you're right. If somebody could just kind of show them the ropes, that's incredibly important, right? To get the case going and to make sure your physician's not grumpy during the case or happy during the case, right? Which makes your day so much better. And so, yeah, I, I just wish that was kind of pushed. And I, it, again, it depends on culture, it depends on where you're at, depends on who's training that technologist, but that's incredibly important for optimizing workflow, make sure the case goes smoother. And again, room turnover is huge. Well, it's funny, the best case scenario, it's in the room next door. Worst case scenario, it's in the right, cath lab right. on a different Stock floor, room. right? Yeah. And the yeah. elevator yeah. shot yeah. that day. Um, or or they just realized they don't yeah. have it and we're out of stock. Yeah, and right? they spent 10 <laughs> minutes looking for it. You know, it's, it's funny. I look at it from a slightly different angle. And a lot of physician entrepreneurs look at their staff cost as a sunk cost. Meaning I am paying the staff this day this much money, whether we do one case or 10 cases. But when I look at staff, I look at a different level of resource. And so... If you have a, a, a really fantastic staff and a really fantastic tech, they are going to care about your facility and your patients as much or more than you are. And if they're proud of the work that you're doing in your facility, there is no better advocate you can get to represent your facility. And, and most labs, Aaron, I wish it was the case. Most labs don't have patients stacked up beyond belief. So if they can get to two or three patients in a day, they're winning as opposed to the hospital that has cases going in those facilities all day, all night sometimes. And so they the hospital's more incentivized for workflow because they know they're not going to pay overtime hours. Uh, whereas the OBL, it's rare that we're going to have a 7 to 5 p.m. day, five days a week. And so what I, when I look at techs, I say, hey, if we can get the techs and or nurses done with cases through their tasks and out the door at an early time, why not give them two or three referring offices to visit on their way home? Because no one else is going to sell your center as much as the people who care about the care you're delivering. I mean, and so I look at there's a huge opportunity cost by not get being efficient and getting people doing things that are going to generate more revenue. Yeah. And what about prepping for the next day's cases? How often are you seeing that act, you know, kind of contributing to efficiency in the the mini OBLs that you uh, work with, Chad? It's a great question. I, I, it's not on my radar and it should be. And the reason why is that the inventory levels are somewhat lean in an OBL and they're very concentric to a certain or few number of cases, type of cases. And so I don't often think about the prep time for tomorrow as much as just hitting a checklist to make sure, hey, we have two ports tomorrow. Do we have three on the shelf? You know, that's kind of the scramble. Um, and for a lot of OBLs without a good tech, and Lake could probably talk to this, without a good tech, you don't know what you have on the shelf. And so what happens is the next morning you go in and, oh crap, we have two ports today and we only have one. Now you're calling three reps to see who can be a hero first. And that's not efficient either. I mean, Lake, do you think that being a good tech aside, I think that's just being like an overall competent tech, right? It's just knowing the inventory and knowing what you got for the next day. What would you say? Yeah, I agree. Say you do like mostly one type of case, but you occasionally get like a few different variance cases that are pretty simple for the most part. 
if someone doesn't know where like an eight French drain is or an NUS tube is, if they haven't been exposed to that as much as I have, I, I understand that. But when it's the basic stuff that you need for every case, you, you should know where everything is. Yeah, agree. Um, we've been talking a lot about supply and inventory. I worked someplace where it was actually inventory was taken care of by the nurses, which was a little bit odd to me because they're not, I mean, nurses are amazing, right? They do, they're very good at what they do, but it's not like they're using these tools. What do you, have you seen that lake? And, and what do you, I mean, I, I just feel like a tech should be the one in charge of disposables, but tell me what you think. Yes, I, I do as well. But at the same time, if someone's well-trained nurse, admin, they should be able to. Now, what you're speaking to sounds like they weren't well-trained and they were just basically, well, walking around and there's a little list. And on that list, there's like, order this, 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 and this. And if someone didn't check that for them and they don't even know what that product looks like, it's going to be hard for them to know that that needs to be reordered. So I think the key to maintaining any good inventory is actually knowing what you're ordering. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, it, if they don't know what the importance of that tool is or that the device or widget, whatnot, then they don't know the ins and outs, right? Um, and that, that was, I think, the big challenge. Much like we know the importance of different medications, but there's nuance to like even just knowing that, oh, this has a tendency to be on back order, you know, stuff like that. Uh, Chaz, what what have you seen in your experience with tech versus nurse in terms of inventory? Yeah, what we see most often is that uh, the techs will run everything for the lab, and then the nurses will run everything for the office side, whether it's exam rooms, recovery, pre pre op, etc., and a lot of the medications. So I, I do more often not see that delineation of duties between the two types of healthcare providers there. But you know, I think. What we see the most often is that people build labs and they build them smaller than they should. Just kind of like if you've ever built a deck on your house, no one's ever regretted going too big on their deck, right? <laughs> like it's always like, oh, I wish I had gone another five feet this way. And so what we see a lot of times is we see bad purchasing processes where people buy bulks of all sorts of stuff. And then you'll have boxes of inventory throughout the entire facility. So underneath the center manager's office could be four cases of sheets. And in the top cabinet of the physician's room could be four micropunctures. And there could be three wires stuck underneath the cabinet in this storeroom. And, you know, it's about having, I think, in addition to who's responsible, making sure there's a transparency of information that everyone knows where everything is. And that's a huge challenge, too. Uh, and the challenge for you that you mentioned as a locum, right? Because no one knows where anything is. Yeah, well, exactly. I, I don't know where it is, you know, and so that's, I'm not helpful. I'm just barking yeah. orders, you know, and, you know, and you guys, I'm sure aware of this because it's, I, I've heard that this is the case in the outpatient space as well, but there's a, you know, with COVID, there's a lot of people are doing travel now and especially in the hospital. And so we have this kind of turnstile of nurses and tech. So every time I go to a hospital that I'm familiar with, there's new nurses and techs there that they don't know me, I don't know them, I don't know if they know where stuff is, so it's not very it's not as efficient as I would like it to be. I I do know the importance of and I've seen this in places like Krishnamanova's lab or at you know his home base is the importance of recruiting the right people, a good team that you treat them like family 
and they're going to stay. And that's going to lead to, it may not, you know, it may not be the first six months, but eventually you're going to get there where it runs like a well-oiled machine. And because it runs like a well-oiled machine, much like Lake was saying earlier, you might get out of one or two some days. And that is, that is good life, you know, work-life balance, right? For everybody. That's what people strive for. Yeah. And, and I think it just, it takes time and it takes energy to like really build that culture. It's not going to happen overnight. And for people who are more transient, they're just not going to get to experience that. You have to like invest the time and energy to be there to form those bonds. And that's what I've seen is just when there's this transient nature to healthcare, just it all kind of breaks down eventually. Yeah, you know, I, I would add there are two parts of what you just said that I think are instrumental for physician entrepreneurs or managers in general. And, and those two parts are allowing people to fail in a safe and controlled way, right? So allow people to learn at the rate that they can and make mistakes at the rate that are, are appropriate without causing risk to patients. And then two, you know, healthcare has a really bad history of classism and hierarchies. And I think if we can remove some of that hubris and allow everyone to give dialogue and communicate, then you're going to learn so much more. We do an internship program. We usually have three different interns a year. And most of my, my intern currently is actually uh, just finished his sophomore year in undergrad. And so I take 30 minutes every three weeks to sit down with him to allow him to ask any questions he wants. But I also ask him what I could do better. And so I've got a young person here who doesn't have really any professional experience, but has eyes and a brain. And I want to hear from them firsthand what we're doing wrong or how we could be better or where there's stop gaps. And a lot of physicians who become business people are used to their role in the lab where you have to be the final authority. And I think that transition into an OBL where you can allow people to fail and allow people to question or challenge or make suggestions that's where you're going to foster the most beneficial culture you can. Have you worked in both sort of situations, Like, Yeah. So to your point, like a doctor can't be perfect at every position, especially in an OBL. So to find people that you trust and um, you can support and like nurture to help you in these small situations, I think that's only going to, number one, empower your people to stay engaged with you and just continue to grow. So I, I think that's how you really develop a great culture is putting your trust into other people because that's how I felt empowered when people trust me. It just makes me want to run through walls for people when people put their trust in me. So I, I think that's the best way to build a great culture. Yeah, Aaron, just a quick shout out because he mentioned it. Maria, the lead tech for Krishna's lab, I, I knew her when she was hired because we had been open for six months or a year before that. And just seeing her flourish under the culture that he's created at Vive, where she went from being a tech to basically running the whole show for Krishna to a large extent. It's been a beautiful observation on my part to see that flourishment. And it's because of that culture of everyone is a part of the team and everyone has a say in what we're doing. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Krishna is uh, definitely accomplishing big things. I think we're, he's not even close to being done too. So I'm excited to see what's to come with. Uh, he just brought it on IR, which is yeah. amazing. I love to see these collaborative vascular surgery IR practices. Yeah. You know, So I do want to talk a little bit about the importance of a good technologist when it comes to 
navigating relationships with industry partners because that can get tricky with docs, right? In the hospital, a lot of times the visits aren't at an ideal time, the doc's busy, and the technologist, the lead tech, usually is the one who's will interact with with industry and you know see what's the latest and greatest, see what the deals are, that sort of thing. So that's where I find them really helpful because they kind of filter out the noise for the doc. And uh, Lake, I want to hear your input on that when it comes to dealing with industry because not every salesperson's good, right? Not every sale, not every salesperson's helpful or, or likable. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. So you guys are kind of like the gateway, which I love, right? Yeah, we always had this conversation like that person is a salesperson, and it wasn't necessarily a compliment, right? But the people, yeah, I interacted with industry for a very long time because I I wanted to get into industry. So the best way that I could partner with them was to understand their product, understand their competitors and how they were different and what value their product specifically brought. So the more I understood about their product and I became the expert in the room, that means they didn't have to come in and cover a case because I don't want to have to wait for someone to come in when I'm on call. So if I know how to run one of the devices that normally needs support, we can go ahead and get started. So I loved interfacing with industry. And you're right, to be like a gatekeeper a little bit and kind of boil down their message into a couple of sentences so the doc doesn't have to go through it. And it's like, they're here, they want to talk about this, we got something like that. I, I think it's really beneficial to like, especially in an OBL, to keep distractions down because if you're the doctor owner, you know, you've got a lot of things on your plate all the time. Anytime you can narrow that down for people and condense that information, you're doing someone a very big service. Agree, agree. Probably one of the most important parts of this talk is how does a tech improve patient satisfaction? I feel like we always think that, okay, the physician's patient-facing, the nurse's patient-facing, the front desk is patient-facing, but I think we underestimate how much the technologist interacts with the patient and that can make or break their experience in your lab. And so I wanted to kind of get both of y'all's take on that. I'll use my hospital experience uh, really quickly, but a lot of the times we did cases without nurses. So I'm the one that goes and gets them, walks them back to the procedure room, gets them dressed, all those things. So I'm the one that spends the most time with the patient, getting them prepped. They're asking me questions when they get nervous. So the best way to improve like patient care is to just interact with people genuinely, answer their questions the best you can within your scope, even ask questions when you can tell people are nervous. Uh, when I prep people out now, I usually like, it takes me, you know, five to 10 minutes to get a case ready. And I just ask them where they're from, what do they do, stuff like that, because people feel more comfortable once they get a chance talking about themselves. So if we can have a genuine conversation while I'm rolling out a drape and prepping, prepping the room, pay, prepping the patient, I think people can just get more comfortable and they'll ask, well, is this going to hurt or is this going to, what's this going to feel like? And you can just reassure them what the doctor said. Yeah. You know, I think culture has to permeate every member of an organization. And so if there's one piece of an organization that doesn't convey that culture or the, the core tenets of a center, then you're going to miss a part. Uh, when you think about the patient experience, when they're most vulnerable or at their highest anxiety levels, when they're getting out of their street clothes, they're putting on a gown, they're in a chillier space than they may actually want, 
and they're being wheeled by a stranger into a room that scares them. And it doesn't matter how beautiful your lab is, that experience of getting out of your own clothes into temporary clothes to be vulnerable to another human being is a really scary process for anybody. And a great tech is going to contribute to that and make sure that they are going to have that security and safety, just like Lake said. But I think the other big piece of this is patients are consumers. And so they are investing either their time or their financial resources for an outcome. And your tech is going to be one of your biggest success factors to determine a successful outcome in your case. And so they're part of the team. You know, we have a similar culture here where upstairs it says every call, every text, every email will affect a patient. Now, that's a hard space for us to understand because I've got young people working for me that have never been in a lab and all they're dealing with is spreadsheets and emails all day. It's hard for them to rationalize that there's a patient at the end of that. And, you know, your tech is going to be one of your biggest predictors of successful cases. You know, so there's the cultural piece or the human piece, but there's also the actual, are we going to have a successful outcome? And that's what patients care about. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, I've had texts, you know, come up to me later and they're like, yeah, that patient was so funny. They wanted to know where you went to med school and they wanted to know where you trained. You know, they were drilling the tech about me and and they had fun with it and they made sure that clearly the patient was anxious about the procedure and how many had I done? And, and they, you know, they did an amazing job of calming the patient, letting them know that, you know, Dr. Fritz has done many of these and I've worked with him and so forth. And so that versus, you know, if they were just be like, oh, you know, stay quiet or not say anything. I mean, you're right. A tech really has to have people skills. Like they need to know how to talk to people. Otherwise, that's going to just make their patient experience worse if they're not friendly if they're not forthcoming with information. It's almost like common sense, but you know, everybody has different personalities. Yeah. It, everything comes down to like the vibe of the room, right? You can tell when people are anxious and you try to exert confidence any way you can and just reassurance. And that's the same lesson table side. Like if you can have what you need to the doctor before you even ask it for you, like you've already like exerted confidence with him and all that confidence just goes to patient satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well, Lake, speaking of education, I, I, before we finish up, I did want to ask you, you are out there educating fellow techs and even physicians. I mean, I learned from your, your videos on uh, LinkedIn about all things, right? It, it's basically, it's funny that we're called Backtable, but your videos are actually taking place on Backtables and I love them and I appreciate what you're doing. And I just wanted to give you the opportunity to tell us why did you start doing that and what's your plans with with your videos? Yeah, thanks for asking. It kind of started during the pandemic. I was working for Boston and they didn't have anything for us to do. So they were like, why don't you guys make product demonstration videos? And so like I demonstrated on my like kitchen table on how to like deploy an interlock. And I got really creative with it. I was basically watching a lot of YouTube those first few weeks. And so I just made like this YouTube style, like funny cuts and stuff like that. And I really enjoyed it. And back in October, November, we hired a new uh, scrub tech, an additional scrub tech because our volumes were increasing. And I just thought, you know, there's not a whole lot of info out there uh, YouTube wise, like, or even like in the short form video, like TikTok, uh, Instagram reels, stuff like that, really explaining stuff. People love to talk about like the results, but they don't talk about how they get there. Like a running joke that we used to have was like, 
uh, you would remote into like something a guest and you missed the first 45 minutes of them trying to get access into some artery, right? So why not start talking about all the basics that people probably just don't understand, like wrapping a wire, holding a wire, exchanging a wire, pinch pull. And so like, I just didn't see a whole lot. So I just thought I'd start feeling a need and hopefully it's making people's lives easier. People reach out with questions and I'm happy to answer them. So it's really rewarding. Yeah. Thank you again so much for putting those out there. And I know how labor intensive video is because we've dabbled in it before and we've We've streamlined our process so that we're focused on good quality audio. But part of the reason is that it's just super labor intensive to edit all those videos. And so kudos to you. And, and I appreciate what you're doing with that. Is it just your YouTube channel? That's probably the best place for people to go. Yeah. So right now it's my LinkedIn, but I'm uh, in the process of creating uh, irtechtips.com. And I'm actually going to try to create some online courses, like basically um, tech to interventional tech. It's going to be the first one that I roll out and then there'll be like advanced techniques. And then I think one will be like working in an OBL and maybe even potentially like if you want to get into industry, like how I, I made the pivot to industry from being a technologist. I think uh, right now it'll be my LinkedIn, but I'm building that page and building some classes. I think the IR tech tips will be like a blog style where I take my posts that are kind of collective over like three or four and make a little bit more long form content with it. And then hopefully have some more videos out short form, because I think that's where people are learning a lot. Um, and a lot of information is being disseminated, you know, on TikTok and YouTube real or YouTube reels, YouTube shorts, Instagram reels, all that thing is where people are kind of the way people are consuming information these days. So I think it'll help maybe get people more interested in our field and maybe drive people to be interested in moving to these roles that seem to be hard to get staff sometimes. Yeah. Chaz, any final thoughts before we wrap up here? No, I think, you know, one of the things I really have appreciated about meeting Lake and getting to know him over the last year is that he's putting out a lot of collateral for free into the world that's helpful to people. And I think in a world where we all work, where everyone's taking, being a person that can give, kind of like you, Aaron, here on back table, right? Giving out a free education, helping the masses, helping create a better experience for patients and caregivers is, is something that's outrageously needed in our world right now. And so it's been an honor kind of to become friends with Lake over the last year and get to know you, Aaron, now over the last two. But yeah, you know, I, a good tech will make or break a practice and there's just no other way around it. And the ones who have not invested in their techs to the extent that they should, are the centers that I work with most often are having them the biggest issues, both filling the seats and in terms of their financial goals. And so the tech is just critical to that. I completely agree. I think investing in people is just as, if not important, more important than capital equipment um, when starting out. Yeah. So I think that's a nice way to put a pin in it. Anything else to add, Lake, before we finish? No, I'm just so happy that you invited me on. It's been a great talk. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts 
Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Louis Kennebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us.